Let's pray for God to move uh, in our hearts and in our service because we need him to do that. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we come before you today and we are grateful for sending uh, you sending your son, Jesus Christ, to conquer sin and death, to die in our place for our sins and to rise from the dead so that by faith in him we can have forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus, you sit enthroned in heaven you are our risen Savior and King. And God, we want to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So God, we pray that you would move in our hearts today to encourage us to that end from your word. We ask it and we pray it in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, many of you are familiar with uh, William Wilberforce uh, and his tireless uh, struggle to end the slave trade in England. What you may not be familiar with is that William Wilberforce was just as passionate about the spread of the gospel and the reformation of morals in society as a result of the spread of the gospel. And I want to just share just a bit from his uh, childhood today. He was born on August 24th, 1759, to a wealthy merchant family in the city of Hull, and at the age of eight, his sister, who was 14 at the time, died. Then just a few months later, his father suddenly died at the age of 40. And just a few months after that, his mom uh, became ill. And so little William was sent at the age of 10 to live with his aunt and his uncle in Wimbledon. And when he went to be with his aunt and uncle, he quickly uh, grew to love them. He said... Uh, he wrote this. He said, I love them as if they had been my parents. Now, they were an extremely wealthy family. They had no children of their own, and William was to be their heir. But the greatest inheritance that they gave to William was actually spiritual. Their greatest influence on him was a spiritual influence. They were serious Christians. They were close friends with George Whitefield. They were very close friends with John Newton, the former slave trader who became a, a pastor. Uh, that's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. While it's unlikely that little William would have met um, George Whitefield, we know that he had lots and lots of contact and became close friends with John Newton. Uh, John Newton would often go to London and he would visit the Wilberforces for what he called household preaching. And the Wilberforces would often go to Olney with little William and they would uh, meet with John Newton. And so these people had a tremendous influence in the life of William Wilberforce, all of which was happening without his mother's awareness whatsoever. She didn't know that, <laughs> that these were serious Christians, uh, what were called at the time enthusiasts. But when she found out about it, she was not happy about it. Uh, she immediately left for London to rescue her son. She didn't want him to be a serious Christian. She wouldn't even let him go to her church when she brought him back home. So at the age of 12, William is determined to cling to his faith, and his mother is just as determined to cure him of it. So his mom and his grandpa and all of his friends did everything that they could to keep William from being a serious Christian and to slowly and steadily pull him back into the world. It's exactly the opposite of what a parent and a grandparent should 
want, and they were successful, so that by the time William is aged 16, he is a carefree, fun-loving, and not serious at all about his faith any longer. Praise God that God drew him back to himself. Now, later in life as an adult, William wrote a very influential book. It's called The Practical View of Christianity. Actually, the full title is this, and enjoy this. A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in this Country Contrasted with Real Christianity. (laughs) That's the full name of his book, um, which is just totally awesome. No hiding the agenda there with a title like that. We know exactly what we're after. And right off the bat, in chapter 1, the second paragraph of his book, this is what William writes. He says, In an age wherein it is confessed and lamented that infidelity abounds, do we observe in parents any remarkable care to instruct their children in the principles of the faith which they profess and to furnish them with arguments for the defense of it? The very first place that William Wilberforce looked for evidence of real faith was in families, whether or not parents are taking seriously their role to pass faith to their children. Now, the parents, he laments, he goes on and he talks about how the parents are very keen, they're very careful to make sure that their children are fit for society, but they neglect their discipleship so that, as William says, a child is, quote, left to collect his religion as he may. Now, that fits his upbringing to a T. William Wilberforce understood, like so many, he understood all too well that family discipleship is essential for the spread of the gospel and the advance of God's kingdom in the world. That God wants faith passed down from generation to generation. That's where he starts That's what we're going to see in our text today from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So turn back there in your Bibles, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. And the message for us this morning is this. Fear and love the Lord with all that you are and teach your children to do the same. Fear and love the Lord with all that you are and teach your children to do the same. And we're going to see three truths to help us hear this call from the Lord this morning. First, God greatly blesses those who keep his commands. God's favor encourages our faithfulness. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Moses tells them, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Remember, 40 years ago, the people met God on Mount Sinai. They asked him to be their mediator. He said, you go talk to God and then come and tell us what God says and we'll do everything that God says. We saw last week in chapter 5, God said, this is good. So Moses right now is acting like their mediator. He's telling them all the commands of the Lord. He says, this is what the Lord commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. So Moses is teaching them all of God's commands for two reasons, that you may do them, verse 1, and that you may fear the Lord, verse 2. Now, we're commanded to fear the Lord 14 times in the book of Deuteronomy. We saw it in chapter 4, we saw it last week in chapter 5, we see it here in chapter 6, and we're going to see it again and again. Last week, Pastor Stephen spent a lot of time unpacking the fear of the Lord. So today, I just want to point out once again the close connection between the fear of the Lord and obeying the Lord. 
Moses teaches them God's commands, verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. How? By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. So, it's clear that if you fear the Lord, you will obey him. The goal of Moses' teaching then was to instill a fear of the Lord that led to lifelong, multi-generational faithfulness. We learn two things about the kind of faithfulness that God is after. First, God wants lifelong obedience. God expects obedience all the days of your life. God's the Lord. He's the king. He's the boss. He gets to tell you what to do, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but all the days of your life. God wants lifelong faithfulness. And second, God wants multi-generational faithfulness. Look again at verse 2. It says, so that you, your son, and your son's son would fear the Lord by keeping all of his commandments. God's got this multi-generational vision. He wants you, your children, your grandchildren to be faithful. And he wants us to have that same vision. We need to be thinking about our children and our grandchildren's faithfulness and teaching our children to think about the faithfulness of their children and their grandchildren. Why? So that uh, each new generation will be faithful to the Lord. And this theme of multi-generational faithfulness, it runs all the way through this text in Deuteronomy 6. It, It runs through all of Deuteronomy and all of the Bible as a whole. So God wants lifelong, multi-generational faithfulness, and he encourages our faithfulness. How does he do that? By laying out the benefits for those who obey him. Now, as parents, we're not above using uh, motivation, using rewards as a motivation for our children. Uh, we just finished potty training our youngest daughter, and uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that we gave her a treat for every successful trip to the potty, and we gave her a sticker for every half day that she uh, made it with no accidents, and at the end of the week of being successful, we gave her an even bigger reward for uh, successfully learning this new skill. So we're not above using rewards to motivate our kids, and God is not above using rewards to motivate his people either. Look at verse 3. He says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now verses 2 and 3, they're just loaded with motivations to, uh, to obey the Lord. And I think there's four reasons here, all beginning with the, the word that. So we see in verse 2, that you, your son, your son's son, may fear the Lord. First of all, the fear of the Lord is itself a blessing. I don't have time to unpack this. We talked about this already in chapter 4. But those who fear the Lord lack no good thing, Psalm 34, verse 9, as a sampling. And the fact that you and your children and your grandchildren are following the Lord, that itself is a blessing of the Lord. Then we see at the end of verse 2 that your days may be long. God is promising to bless Israel as a people with long life in this this good land that he has for them, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Then verse 3, that it may go well with you, which is just a very broad blessing. And then at the end of verse 3, that you may multiply greatly. As a people, Israel will multiply greatly. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Amen? They're not a burden. 
Children are a blessing from the Lord, and God wants those children to grow up to worship him. That's the multiplication that God is after. He's not just going to multiply Israel for that sake alone. He wants those children to be raised in the faith and to become worshipers. He wants to fill the earth and ultimately heaven with worshipers. So there are both material as well as spiritual blessings for obedience, and blessings not just for individuals, but blessing on God's people as a whole from generation to generation. And I want you to notice that any blessing that, that follows their obedience is based on God's promise to their fathers. And so it's still rooted, grounded in grace. It's a gift of God's grace. That's why I say God's favor encourages our faithfulness. God uses blessings then as a motivation to encourage their faithfulness and ours. What's the point? If we want lifelong, multi-generational faithfulness, it begins by trusting, trusting that God blesses those who keep his commands, who follow him and walk in his ways. The primary application of this first point is to trust this, to believe this. Obedience follows your faith. It's trusting that God is going to bless you for your obedience, that that his way is best. That is what we must trust and believe. Not simply that God's way is right. It is right. But it's also good and beautiful and, ble- and best. It leads to God's glory and your good, your greatest joy. So trust it. Trust it, beloved. And teach your children to trust it too so that they will know the blessings of the Lord. I love, like, in Deuteronomy 5.10, God has already told us I show steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commands. Trust that. So after encouraging their faithfulness, then he tells them how to be faithful, and that leads us to point two. Love the Lord your God with total devotion. God's character demands our commitment. We see this in verse four through six. Look there with me. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So verse 4 is the heart of Israel's confession and faith. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This points to both the uniqueness and the unity of God. The, the nations around them were polytheistic. They had many gods. Israel was monotheistic. They had one God. There is no other. Our God has no rivals. Amen? And because of that truth, this fundamental truth, the Lord is one, it comes with a fundamental duty. Love God completely. Now, Jesus pointed to this, and he said, this is the first and the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Mark 12, 30. So the character of God in verse 4 leads to the command for total allegiance in verse 5. The one God demands and deserves our total devotion. But what does it mean for us to love God? It's not a sappy sentimentalism. Our, our culture has become almost entirely driven by emotion. And it's way too easy for us to read our modern understanding of love into the text and misunderstand what God is asking of us. So we need to be careful how we define love for God. Yes, it includes our emotions, but that's not 
all or even mainly what it is. It's better to define love for God as total commitment, total loyalty to him. So the word heart in Hebrew, that's the seat of your, not just your emotions, but also your your mind, your thoughts, your will, your desires. It's your decision-making center. It's so much bigger, deeper, richer than the way we think about the heart. The word soul, nephesh, it's just a common word for for your whole life, not just your whole inner being, yes, but, but all of you, your whole being. And then the word strength, or depending on your translation, might, it means all of your capacities, all of your, your resources. Give God everything that you've got. I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees here. The stacking up of these terms is to drive home the point that God wants total devotion. He's all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. He wants all of you. That's the point here. That is what he's driving at. Love God with everything you are, with complete loyalty and commitment. Uh, You make time for what you love. So if you love fishing, you will make time to go fishing. You care about what you love. So if you love cars, you will take care of yours. You sacrifice for what you love. If you love good food, you will spend extra money so that you can eat healthy because it's worth it for you to to make that sacrifice. Notice that your life is oriented around, it's driven by what you love. And that makes me ask, how's your love for the Lord? Do you make time for Him? Do you take care to obey Him? Are you willing to make sacrifices for Him? Uh, the, the, the test of a man's love for his wife, it's not how he feels about her, it's how he treats her. The test of our love for Jesus is whether or not we will obey his commands. Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So love for God and obedience to God are connected, they go hand in hand, and our obedience flows out of our love for God for who he is and what he has done for us. And on this side of the cross, especially for what he has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. So, what area of your life are you living in disobedience to the Lord? Or, to ask this another way, in what area of your life are you failing to love the Lord fully? With total devotion. And what needs to change in your life so that you can love him fully? How fully do you love the Lord? The answer to that question is not found in how you feel about him. It's found in how fully you obey him. That's why verse 6 says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The word of God was not meant to be left written on stone. It was to be written on the tablets of their hearts so that it would direct the course of their lives. It's to be on our hearts, directing our life. God expects that of every one of us as individuals. But how does that connect to multi-generational faithfulness? Well, if we want our children to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, it should be obvious that we must first do so ourselves. Our own wholehearted devotion is the crucial first step for us if we want to pass our faith and our love for God to our children. It's often said, parenting is more caught than taught. You heard that? That's true. If we're not following the Lord, there's little hope that our kids will. 
If they don't see you spending time in God's word and in prayer, then they probably won't either. Our example is essential, and we have to set them an example worth following. We need to be able to say to our kids, do as I do, not just do as I say. Do as I do. Like Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That is the invitation that parents should make to their children. Follow me as I follow Jesus. You might be saying, I could never do that. I, I don't follow Jesus good enough for that. No, 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 no. You can say that. You don't have to be a perfect follower in order to say this. You just need to be a genuine follower of Jesus. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to sin just like they will. And they need to see, they need to learn by your example, what do they do? What do I do when I sin? They learn from you modeling repentance as well as faith, showing them that when you sin, you confess, you repent, and you continue walking by faith with the Lord. The point is, is that discipleship is both show and tell. It's not just tell. You can't disciple someone beyond your own level of discipleship. You, your faith has to be real and vibrant in your own life if it's going to be real and vibrant in your children's life. You can't give someone something that you don't have. Amen? I had a pathophysiology, my, my pathophysiology professor in pharmacy school did not, did not understand the content that she was trying to teach. And because of that, she could not train us. She could not teach us. You have to know and love the Lord yourself if you are going to teach your children to know and love the Lord well. Uh, lifelong, multi-generational faithfulness starts when each one of God's people love and fear him with total devotion. That's the crucial first step if we're going to be faithful all of our days and pass on faith to the next generation. And that leads us to point three. Diligently teach your children to love and obey God. God's word establishes our worldview. We see this in verses seven through nine. Look there with me. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. I think it's really remarkable that the very first outward action after we're given the great commandment is to disciple your children. That's how important this is. Parents, impress the hearts of your children with a love for God and the truth of his word so that they learn to fear him and follow him all their days and that they might benefit from the blessings of obedience to the Lord. This is God's strategy to advance the gospel and his kingdom from generation to generation. God intended to bless the nations through Abraham, Genesis 18, 18. And then God says, for or because I've chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him, Genesis 18, 19. So Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to disciple your kids. I've got this great big global mission, and it's going to happen through family discipleship. I want you to pass faith to your children and them to their children. That's the strategy. Global mission is going to be accomplished through family discipleship. It's the same thing we're seeing here in Deuteronomy. 
Why did God give you your children? It is not just so that they could grow up in a loving home with shelter and food and clothing and get a good education. God gave you your children with this purpose of impressing their hearts with a love for God and his word. So he says, diligently teach them. This word diligently means to impress upon. And the word picture here is like engraving something on a, on a stone. And the idea is permanence. When you, when you carve something into stone, it's permanent. So this is, this is a picture of a Hebrew engraving that's over 2,000 years old. It says Jerusalem on it. Now, we still use this expression, well, it's not set in stone. When we say that, we mean it's not permanent. God is saying, diligently teach my word to your children so it becomes permanently fixed on their hearts so that they will become steadfast. They'll love me steadfastly all their days. Now, you kids, your responsibility in this is to listen, to receive, to hear the instruction of your parents. God has instructed your parents to instruct and teach and disciple you. Receive that from them. Now, how, as parents, do we impress the hearts of our kids with a love for God and the truth of his word? We talk about it. We talk about them, about God and his word, relating it to all of life. Look again. It says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. From breakfast to bedtime, God should be in your conversation. God gives four Powerful moments every day for discipleship. First, when you sit in your house. God wants us to have regular times when we sit together as a family for instruction in his word. We, we call this family worship. Family worship is just what it sounds like. It's, it's you and your family gathered together to worship God in your home. We gather to hear instruction from God's word and to respond back to God with thanks and praise as a family. So read, pray, sing. These are the basics of family worship. Reading scripture is central. It's God's word that has the power to transform lives. Amen? So when you're reading God's word, go slow, ask questions, explain things as you go, uh, explain, define big words. You can have your kids summarize back to you the things that you're reading. Take your time, read God's word, look for one or two truths to apply in the lives of your children, whether that's a truth to believe, to trust, or a truth to act on in your life. So read the word, pray together. I want to encourage you specifically here to let the scriptures guide your prayers. So whatever passage of scripture that you were reading, let it guide your prayer. If you're reading the great commandment, then you're going to be praying, God, help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let the model, the examples of prayer in God's word teach you how to pray. I really want to stress, too, that you, as you pray as a family, get everybody engaged. Get your kids engaged. You learn to pray by praying. So maybe that means that you, you all go around the circle and you thank God for a blessing. Or maybe it means you pray in a round for each other. You just pray in a circle. Or maybe you have all your prayer requests and you divvy them up. Whatever you do, mix it up, get everybody engaged in prayer. Your prayers don't have to be long, but they need to be intentional because you are modeling for your children how they're supposed to pray. And finally, sing together. Sing songs with solid theological content because songs teach. Song makes the truth sticky. It gets us, the truth stuck in our heads. So pick good songs 
I know you might, you, might, you might be tempted to neglect singing as part of your family worship time, especially if you're not used to it, but singing isn't just a way that we pass on our faith. It's also a way that God uses to bond us together as his people. So if you miss singing, you miss one of God's main ways to rejoice the heart and instruct the mind and to build relationships. And that building of relationship is crucial because it's through that heart connection that we influence our kids. Now be consistent. Spend time regularly in family worship. As your kids get older and they get more involved in activities, I think that becomes challenging. But I want to encourage you that teenagers need this just as much or more than little kids. Make it engaging. As you think about instructing your kids, I want you to ask two questions. Based on this child, what instruction do they need now? Tailor your instruction to them. And based on our culture, what truths do they need to be grounded in before they leave our home? I think some folks are so busy they can't even imagine a time when their whole family can sit down together. And if that's you, let me gently but firmly encourage you that something needs to change in your schedule so that you can keep this command, so you can find time to sit together as a family. Now think about this. We are so intentional with sports and with music and with so many other extracurricular activities. We, we schedule time for it. We spend money on it. We drive all over town for it. We even require our kids to put in the time and effort to practice it despite their grumbling and complaining. Are we that intentional with family worship? And we invest in all these other things, but somehow the thought of giving 20 minutes a day to God in worship seems like too much to ask. As Vodibachum put it, if I teach my son to keep his eye on the ball but fail to teach him to keep his eye on Christ, then I have failed as a father. The second time of day is when you walk by the way. As you go through the day, you bring God into your conversation. These are teachable moments when we point our kids to God's word, when we're helping them handle conflict or make decisions or process events, whether it's an event in their own life or an event in the world. This is how we help our kids develop a biblical worldview. We're teaching them to view all of life through the lens of Scripture. Son, I know this is a big decision, and it's scary. Let's see what God's word has to say about this. Hey, let's talk about some of the messages in that movie that we just watched. How does that line up with what we see in God's word? Let's talk about the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. How, how should we think about this current event as Christians in light of God's word, and how should we respond to it? Teach them diligently when you walk along the way. Third, when you lie down at the end of the day. You end the day with God. We always give our kids, we pray a blessing over our kids from Scripture every night when we put them to bed. The end of the day is a perfect time. It is a great time to offer thanks to God for his mercies, for all the ways that God has provided for you throughout that day, how he's shown himself faithful to you. It's a good time to confess sin, too, if there's unconfessed sin. Now, parents with teenagers, you know some of your best conversations come at the end of the day with your teens. And I want to encourage you, even if you're tired, to lean into those moments. Lean into those moments as a moment that God has given you to disciple them. Fourth, when you rise, start the day with God as a family. Uh, not just personally, 
But this is direction from parents to, to their children. So start the day with God. Bring God into the conversation right away. Maybe you start with a scripture. Definitely start with prayer. Every day has needs. So start by asking God for his direction, for his pr- provision, for his protection, for what's ahead in this day. Ask God for your daily bread. God wants us to, to tune our hearts to him first thing in the morning. Like I know that morning is super crazy, but think about what God can do if you start the day with him, focused on him. Now, I want to ask, which of those four moments do you need greater intentionality as a family? Where do you need to start or perhaps restart as a family? I want to encourage you to start small and be consistent so you can build this habit into your family life. I want to encourage you in all of this to aim for the heart. We pray for God to transform their hearts. Why? Because if it's not on their hearts when they leave our home, they're going to walk away. They're not going to follow the Lord. We want to press this on their hearts so that when they leave, they continue to follow the Lord all the days of their lives. And we instruct God, uh, them in God's character and his works and his commandments and his promises. I want to encourage us to stay gospel-centered in our instruction, right? The gospel is for our salvation. That's the crucial thing that we need to be teaching our children. Amen, somebody. God sent Christ to die for the soul of your child, right? So that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. So we need to keep the gospel front and center for their salvation, but also for their sanctification. How do we, how do we grow in Christ? The same way that we came to Christ, by grace, through faith. We're saved by grace through faith, and we walk by grace through faith. The gospel is crucial for teaching our kids how to live their faith. So keep it central. To send your children out into the world without diligent family discipleship is like sending a soldier to war without training or armor or ammunition. Now, we can send our kids into the world without knowing how to play an instrument or pitch a ball, but we cannot afford to send our kids into the world without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a biblical worldview. I want you to notice something that I think is super, super encouraging It's simply this. I want you to notice that all parents are expected to do this. That means all parents are capable of this. This is not just for the super spiritual. You don't need a seminary education. This calling is not too great or beyond your ability. You can do this. Yes, it takes time and effort. Yes, you have to stay ahead. You have to be learning and keeping a step ahead of your kids. But you can do this by God's grace, in his strength, and his wisdom. You can teach your children the Bible. You can disciple them to know and follow Jesus Christ. This is just like every other good work that God calls you to do. God promises you that he will give you everything you need to do everything he asks by his grace. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Now, parents, God gives you the primary responsibility for discipling your children, but that doesn't mean that you're all alone. It doesn't mean you have to do it all by yourself. It is okay. In fact, it is good for other godly adults, mentors, pastors, to speak the truth into the lives of your kids, especially as they get older. God wants us to saturate our lives with deliberate attention to his commands. God's word is to rule all of your actions. He says you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, 
His word should shape our focus, our worldview. He says they should be frontlets for your eyes. God's word should govern our home, write them on the doorposts of your house, and it should govern society. He says write them on your gates. The gates is where public business, courts, and markets were held. I point this out because I want you to notice the progression from the individual to the family to the world. When we love God and his word, it is going to shape how you live both at home and in the world, in society. That is what led William Wilberforce to stand against slavery and to support so many ministries through the course of his life. I want you to see here that faith is never meant to be merely a private matter. It's meant to impact every aspect of your life and every sphere of life in the world. I'll close with this. So much of our discourse as a society and even as Christians is focused on the problems that we face. We are just dialed in on how bad things are, what's wrong with the world, and who to blame. We've become a pessimistic, complaining people, even as Christians. There seems to be very little attention given to solutions, very little encouragement and hope for the future. This passage gives us one of God's primary, not the only, but one of his primary solutions to the spiritual decay, the moral darkness and chaos that is all around us. God's given us the solution to the problems that we're facing, and it's twofold. It starts with each and every one of us. When we ourselves fear and love God with all that we are, serving him faithfully all of our days in every sphere of life, and then our primary mission and ministry begins at home, teaching our children to fear and love God with all, of they, with all they are, serving him in every sphere of life. Now, it's a long-term strategy, but it's God's strategy, and it has God's backing and blessing behind it. There will be fruit in the immediate and the long run as we pursue multi-generational faithfulness. But this is how we're going to stand firm as a church, us and our children. This is how we're going to stand firm, how we're going to shine as lights in a world, how we are going to spread the gospel and advance the kingdom in our day. Charles Spurgeon put it this way in an article that he called The Kind of Revival We Need. We deeply want a revival of family religion. The Christian family was the bulwark of godliness in the days of the Puritans. But in these evil times, hundreds of families of so-called Christians have no family worship, no restraint upon growing sons, and no wholesome instruction or discipline. How can we hope to see the kingdom of our Lord advance when his own disciples do not teach his gospel to their own children? O oh, Christian men and women, be thorough in what you do and know and teach. Let your families be trained in the fear of God and be yourselves holy unto the Lord. So shall you stand like a rock amid the surging waves of error and ungodliness which rage around us. Amen. That is what we want. If that is true, if that was true in the 1800s, how much more true is it today? 
Family discipleship is one of the main ways that God advances his kingdom to the ends of the earth. So, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Serve him faithfully and teach your children to do the same. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you have done in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you and praise you for calling us to yourself, for giving this incredible mission to us. God, we thank you and praise you that by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, you give us everything we need to do everything you ask. I pray along the lines of this text today that you would help us to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. And God, that you would help us to diligently disciple our children to follow you. God, would you help us to do that, that we might make a, an impact for your kingdom, for your glory in this world. We ask it and we pray it with confidence in your name, Jesus. Amen.